Good morning. It's good to see you all. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors. Uh, for the past several weeks, we have been traveling through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue to do such this morning. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. Now, if you don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and slip up your hand, keep it raised high, and then one of the ushers will be able to give you a copy of a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we're handing out as our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding of who God is. Now, if you have the Bible that we're handing out to you, we're going to be on page 543. Um, now, as you turn there, one of the things we said last week, and just in case you weren't here, is we want you to save the dates, two dates, March 22nd and March 29th. We are going to be talking about some rather important things for us as a congregation um, as it pertains to vision and mission and who we are and what it means to be a part of Redemption Tempe and what God's doing in our congregation. And so we're going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark and talk about that in a two-week series on a vision series. Now, what I ask is that you guys all write down this email address here at Tempe underscore info at redemptionaz.com. And any questions that you've had in your time being here, um, any questions that you wanted to know, you wanted to answer in terms of the life of our church, how you can be more involved, what we're doing, what's our mission, please email that because I'm using that to be able to answer through uh, the two weeks uh, series that we're going to be able to do. So we put that up last week and then we got all of zero emails last week. So apparently you don't care. But those two dates, we will have a, we have a lot of time. So, all right, let's jump into it. Mark chapter two. Here's what we've been going through so far. Mark wrote this letter on behalf of the apostle Peter, primarily to show that Jesus is Lord and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that's the question we've been asking. What does it look like to know and follow Jesus as kingdom disciples? Now, the original audience of this letter were living in about 55, 60 AD, men and women who followed Christ and were being persecuted, many martyred for their faith. Mark himself, as church history lets us know, started churches in Africa, and himself was also killed for believing in Jesus. And so he writes this letter with that sense of urgency and that sense of passion, talking about Jesus being the Son of God and what it looks like for men and women to follow him. And so, so far, we've seen how his kingdom is entering in through the breaking um, in of powers and, and casting out demons and healing people. Last week, we learned about the story of the four friends who took their friend to Jesus, who, um, who had perilous, and Jesus healed them. And then he did something that he had not done so, so far in the story, and that he forgave his sins, showing that he is God, he is the Son of God, and has the ability as well as the authority and desire to forgive people of their sins. Now, what we have for us this morning is Jesus beginning to show how far-reaching his kingdom scope is. And the types of people that God himself is inviting into this kingdom. As we see Jesus begin to hang out with and eat and drink with tax collectors. And we're going to look at that story today. And I have one implication for us at the very end. We're just going to walk through the story. No point. Uh, and to be able to understand the life and love of Christ in our life. And so before we do that, why don't you guys go ahead and bow your heads. Let's pray. Ask God by the Holy Spirit to bless our time and to lead us uh, this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the life and love of Christ. I thank you for all the people that are here. God, that you would remove me. We may see your son, Jesus, and know what it means to follow him. That we would reorient our lives around who he is, what he's come to do, what he's doing. And by your spirit, that you would be able to illuminate the word of God today. That we may see you and have our hearts and our affections raised towards you and for what you're doing in this world. God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so when I was younger, my mom was one of those moms that made you do things, even though like, it, was like, it wasn't an option, right? There was no do you want to, it was this is what you're gonna do, um, before we gave kids options. So she said, hey, you're gonna join the band, right? And my sister had been in the band several years before me and she played the flute and I thought, that's not gonna work for me. So I wanted to do the drums, I thought I could be good at the drums, and I thought immediately when you showed up, you know, fourth grade, that you were gonna be on something like this. And they gave me this little pad, right? And it was like, go away. And I'm like, this is terrible, right? And so I tried, and the teacher was like, all right, well, let's try to see what you can do on a real drum set. Horrible, right? I was horrible, so I quit that. And then my mom said, okay, you need to join the choir. Couldn't make the choir. And so, and here's the deal. Look, when you grow up in a black family and you can't sing, you, it's bad. I was questioning my blackness, everything else. I'm, you think I'm joking. So then my mom says, okay, you're going to play sports. I start playing sports and I thought, Jesus exists. This is amazing, right? And, and what happens is, I think that kind of experience is, is a lot of ours in some way, where we start something that we're really not that good at, no one around us says we're any good at it, and we go, we don't really wanna do that anymore because we feel like we're failing at it. And then we go to something else, whatever it is, and if we're pretty good and there's a community of people around us saying, hey, you're kinda good at this, uh, maybe the adults in your life are saying you're good at it, and then you stick with that thing. Right? We do that whether it's a sport, whether it's a hobby, whether it's who you date, whatever, right? When it comes to religion, I think it's the same way. And when I say religion, hear me, I'm talking about pejoratively. So religion apart from relationship. And that is you grow up in a particular religion, whatever that is, and, and for the sake of our time today, let's just say Christianity. And you know, you begin to learn all the imperatives. That is, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, what it means to be a good Christian. And if you're good at it, and you, you, you get raised in that particular environment, and people say, wow, you're a really good Christian, and the adults in your life say you're a really good Christian, you get good at it. You can kind of follow the rules. Now, you're not perfect, and you acknowledge that, but if God were to, even though he doesn't, graze in a curb, Jesus is perfect, we throw his test score out, and then like, you know, you're, you're kind of at the top. Or, some of us, and when I say us, I mean me, you grow up around things like that, and you go, I'm trying to, I have intentions to obey the rules, but I keep failing at it. And my desires and my passions are for something else. And then you enter into whatever that something else is. And you find a group of people, peers usually, that, that say you're pretty good at this, and our worldview is consistent, maybe adults in your life, and you go, wow, this is pretty good, and I don't fail at this, this is my life. And let's say we just label that as religion and the other side, irreligion. Well, when Jesus walked upon this earth, there were at least two types of people in the greater Jerusalem area. There were those who relig were religious. Those are people who grew up with the Torah. That is the law of God. They knew it from, from childhood. They grew up and they were really good. And they went to um, synagogue, which would be the equivalent, equivalent of us going to a church service. And they went to vacation synagogue school, if there was such a thing, right? They went to all of that. And they, they, they were good. They were good Jewish men and women. And then there are those who maybe grew up in a synagogue, but then maybe left, or their parents were Jewish by race, but not by belief. And so maybe they'd never been introduced to it, or they didn't believe in God. Whatever the case were, they found themselves living completely different lives apart from those who were good Jewish people. Now, they were Jewish, but they were not practicing Jewish. So we could call them maybe Jack Jewish people, right? And so that's, that's where they were. And, and those people, irreligious and irreligious, were the types of people that were living in this greater Jerusalem land as Jesus was walking and teaching and preaching. Interesting enough is that you would think when God himself puts on flesh and enters into our world, that if he's going to relate to people, it's going to be the religious people who externally, at least by their behavior and their morals, look very much like Jesus, and that they would relate to him. 
But that wasn't the case. It just so happens as we continue to read the story of Jesus that he found himself being drawn towards and people being drawn towards him that were part of the irreligious people. These were the prostitutes. These were the gamblers. These were the tax collectors. And I know most of us go, tax collectors, dangerous, right? We're going to explain what that looks like. And we find Jesus um, showing forth in Galilee, showing what his kingdom is like and how his kingdom is completely different than any other kingdom. That it's completely an upside-down kingdom and people cannot put him in a category. In fact, you see the religious and the irreligious, they think it's something, maybe a mixture that becomes to be Jesus, but it's completely different. In fact, when you read the life of Jesus, what you see, he is far, he, he's far too liberal for most conservatives because he's hanging out with prostitutes and he's hanging out with tax collectors. He's out wilding out in the streets. Like, that can't be him. But then at the same time, he's far too conservative for liberals because he believes in hell and heaven. He believes in absolute truth. And so they don't know how to figure him out. His kingdom is completely different. He says, you know what? You want to gain your life? Then do this. Lose it for my sake. But if you want to, if you want to try to um, lose your life, do this. Try to do everything you can apart from me to gain it. His kingdom is completely different. And we begin to see what that looks like and the type of people that are drawn to him through the good news. So let's walk, walk with me through this. Verse 13. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And so what we see is Jesus is back to Galilee, um, in Galilee, particularly in Capernaum, which was the north shore of Galilee. And, and he's been teaching there. He's been around Galilee, which, again, was not a place where most kings would go and set up shop. But he finds himself there because he has a different type of kingdom. And he's walking down the shore, and people are coming to him, and he's teaching, and he's teaching, and he's teaching. Interesting enough, too, it's just everyday people. It's not an esoteric kind of enlightened people who only follow Jesus. It's normal people. Well, he's walking around this, this shore. He finds somebody, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Now, this is when Jesus begins to display what I believe is the scandalous nature of grace. It's the scandalous nature of grace. Here's what I mean. A few chapters before, or last chapter, what we see is Jesus is walking down this same sea, and he calls some people to follow him, all right? And he says, follow me. Now, remember that word, follow me. Follow me was not just, I believe in you. It was, I believe in you, and I'm going to do something about it. There's plenty of people that we know and maybe hear that say, yeah, 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 I believe in God. But your life is not given to Jesus. <laughs> like everything that you do, the way you work, the way you spend your money, the way you hang out with people, so forth, is continued uh, to be continuously reoriented around the life of Christ. To follow him means that. It's discipleship. It's putting one foot in front of the other and following Christ. Well, a few weeks ago, he called Simon and Andrew and, and James and John, and they were fishermen. And the reality was, fishermen were kind of like noble people. Like, they were normal jobs. Like, they were the jobs that most people have. Kind of like applied science and math. Most of us do stuff like that. So you had you these fishermen, and it was, it, was, it was noble job. However, in the story today, when he calls Levi, Levi was a tax collector. Now, that may not make sense to us, why that was such a bad deal. So let me explain that to you. Um, the Israelites had constantly been controlled by other nations. When you read in the, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it was the Babylonians who ripped them away from Jerusalem and they controlled them. Then it was the Persians during the time of Esther. And then during, during, after that, it, it was the time, it was the, the Greece uh, controlled them. And then now it's the Roman Empire. And they, they tried to be a group of people set, set apart, even though they were under the control of somebody else. And with, with Rome controlling them, Rome asked for taxes. 
and primarily taxes as they would have uh, different shipments coming in off the sea. And the way Rome would do it is they would get people who they knew were kind of shady people to run this industry because they knew that they would ask for more money and it could be pretty lucrative for them, and that's where the tax collectors came in. Um, in fact, you know how sociologists, we break up you know, groups of people. There's upper class, middle class, lower class, and in an industrialized society like ours, the middle class is usually the biggest. However, in the Palestinian land, um, you had the upper class who were like the kings and the queens, and then you had a very, very small middle class, people like fishermen, um, people um, like carpenters, so Jesus probably was a part of this, and then you have a wide range of lower class. You have people who were beggars, people who were um, crippled, people um, who were usually outcasts, and then in that was also tax collectors. And it had nothing to do with the money that they made or didn't make. In fact, it was a very lucrative business because they made so much money. It'd be like this. They worked for the man, which no one liked, even today, right? <laughs> and what they would do is they would, let's say Rome said, hey, we need to get 5% on tax. Well, they would go and they would say 9%. 5% will go to Rome and then 4% will go to my pocket. And everybody knew it because they would hire only Jewish people to deal with the Jewish context. And so the Jack Jewish people, we talked about them, they would be people that would take this particular jobs and people hated them, right? Let me give you an equivalent of what that looks like. That would be like a drug dealer. If you grew up in a neighborhood where there's drug dealers, what you have with drug dealers is drug dealers are usually driving the nicest cars, they got the nicest fits, clothes. They, 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 they have it all, right? And the problem is they are making their living and they're earning off people's problems. And they're robbing and literally poisoning our communities. And so if you're mom and you're in the neighborhood, you don't like him. You don't like them. And that's how the tax collectors were. They were, they were completely socially rejected by the rest of the Jewish audience because they knew you do things that hurt us. You rob from us. And you make money off of it. You have a living. Nope. And even when it came to spiritually, they were not allowed in the synagogues because they were deemed as unclean. They were people who were robbing, and they knew that they were robbing. They continued to live that particular lifestyle. And so the people that they kicked it with were not your normal Jewish people, that they hung around people like them. And so nobody liked them. You weren't even able to receive money to give to the poor if it came from someone that you knew was a tax collector. You weren't even supposed to walk down the street being near someone like that. You were not to be associated with someone like that unless they repented of their sins. So you get it? They don't like them. They don't like them. And Jesus comes and he says, hey, Levi, follow me. And just for the sake of names, Levi is also Matthew. It's the same person. Matthew who wrote the first gospel, as you see in the New Testament. So Levi is this guy. Levi is this guy that no one wants. G Levi is this guy who's shady. Don't, don't feel bad about Levi. He's shady. But Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. Your whole life towards me. And what, is, what does Levi do? It says this in verse 14. It says, and he rose and he followed him. You know what that means? He left what he had. He left that lucrative vocation and said, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to make a clean break, and I'm going to follow you. Something is in the way of me following Jesus, and I'm going to leave it. Guys, I don't know if it's your vocation. I don't know if it's a relationship. I don't know whatever particular vice that it may be. But God is always looking at our lives and saying, there's something that is impeding your relationship with Jesus that you got to leave. you, you got to leave it. And you know it. It's not just the inner relationship with Jesus, but oftentimes it's how we grow in a relationship with Jesus. There is something or someone in my life that I have to distance myself in order that I may follow Jesus. Not just say I believe in him, but my actions in my life have to begin to look like someone who follows Jesus. 
Um, a few years ago, I was a very, very young Christian, and there was, um, I was on my way from Phoenix to Fargo, North Dakota, which is a whole other story why I was even going there. And so I find myself in Denver, there's snow, I can't connect on the flight, and so they put us in a hotel, and I decide to pray. Go figure. I'm in this hotel, and I say, Lord, why am I here? Is there something other than just snow? And for one of the first times in my life, I believe God spoke to me. And people say, well, what was that like? Was it an audible voice? He shot me a text, right? <laughs> I sensed it. And what I got from him had to be from God because I would have never done this. There was this girl that I knew, and this was no evangel dating. Don't, don't even go there, right? So there's this girl I knew that was living in a different part of the country, and I had sensed the Lord at 2 o'clock in the morning, time in Denver, 4 o'clock where she was at, call her right now and tell her these things. And so I call this girl, which is awkward already. She's there, she lives with her boyfriend, and here I am, single dude, calling her like, hey, this is Ricardo. In fact, I was like, hey, this is Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> didn't really know her that. I mean, I knew her, but I didn't really know her. So anyways, I said, hey, the Lord is really placing my heart. I'm not a prophet. I don't know what. Do is this as you will. But um, the relationship that you're in right now is actually getting in the way of you actually growing in your relationship with Jesus. Now my heart's all beating all fast. Like, what is she going to say? She goes, man, she starts crying. She goes, Ricardo, you know what? I'm literally getting ready to go to work right now. And I'm sitting on the edge of my bed, and everything that keeps coming to me is, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. And I know everything that I'm doing in this relationship is denying who God is. So she broke up with that guy. She ended up marrying a really good, godly Christian guy, and they have a bunch of kids, and, and she lives in a different country, and I don't even know anymore. It's perfect. <laughs> She owes me, though, right? <laughs> all you, Lord, all you. So. <laughs> Some of us are like that. Matthew gets in this particular state. Levi's here, and he's like, I got I to gotta go. And then he packs up, and he goes, and he goes to follow Jesus. Well, what happens next is when we begin to see this grace open up. Because it's not just Levi, but it's Levi's friends. Read with me in verse 15, and it says, As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So, Matthew, what happens when you, when you leave something? Like, when your life changes like that, um, like, people want to know why, right? And oftentimes you go, let's make a lot about Levi. Man, how would he leave this? Man, wow, look at him. He left a lucrative job. It's not about Levi. Let's think about this just even personally. You know what it's like when you have a friend uh, coworker, sibling, whatever, that starts dating somebody, and they start changing. You know who is she? What's her name? I can. You got the cologne on. Who is she? You brushed your teeth this morning. Who is it? Right? And, and and most of the time, you're trying to figure out like who is it, whether good or bad. They change so significantly that you know there's some. There's. I want to know who this is that's making this happen. And if you grew up in my family, because um, the women in my family kind of ran things, and if, if your mom didn't approve of whoever you were dating, you would know, right? You would get, who is she, right? Your, your mom does that, right? And if you do left to right, it's like, I don't really know. But if you went, who is she, like diagonal, that meant heck no. She's like, she can't come in the house. So if you ever see that, you'll know, right? Like, who is she? <laughs> don't ever bring around the house the whole deal, right? <laughs> so... You want to know who is this? So here's what Levi does. Levi invites the people that he knows. Well, Levi doesn't know good Jewish people. He doesn't know religious people. None of them have hung out with him. None of them have ever said, follow me. None of them have ever done that. So all he knows is what is labeled as sinners. And sinners were prostitutes, gamblers, cheaters, and tax collectors. They kicked it with each other. 
I mean, just normal sociology, right? You hang out with the people who are like you. And so they say, he says, how about I throw a party and I invite my closest friends. Jesus, you come and you, you, you tell your friends, if you want friends, right? We could be friends. Like we could, we could do this. <laughs> we can do this like every weekend, right? So, so what, what, what you have here is Jesus in the setting. Now here, I, I want you guys to understand this setting because oftentimes what you have is people try to over-spiritualize this. Jesus is in the setting, but he's not partaking of any of the activities. Okay, I want you to read this with me again. It says, and he reclined at the table in his house with many tax collectors and sinners, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Okay, when you hear the word reclining, that is a posture and activity in that culture. It literally meant eating and drinking. People say he wasn't drinking wine, that he was drinking grape juice, Welch's. No, he wasn't, right? He was with these people. And these people who no one else would be that seemed to be religious, he was with them. He was in their particular setting. He was where they were. He met them where they were. And, and, and this seems really scandalous because it was, people didn't hang out with them. People didn't hang out with people like that because to eat with people meant that you associated yourself with that person. It meant that if you see them, you're seeing me. And if you see me, you're seeing them. Like, we're associated. We don't even do that. We have people who we're close to. We have people, family members, who we look at and go, we love you, we love you. We would never bring you around our friends. We'd never bring you around the people who we really hang out with. I'll hang out with you and at your house, or you can come to my house, close the door, drop the curtains. We have relationships like that. We have people like that. Jesus is saying, in eating with you in that day, I'm associating myself with you. You are invited to be with me. And he's in this situation. In our day, this would be the equivalent of someone who has made a lot of money, probably in wrong ways, and says, okay, Jesus, um, I got a VIP room at Mint. If you, if you want to come in, I got bottle services, the whole deal, right? And Jesus comes in with the disciples in them, and he eats and he drinks with them. And everybody's going, what is he doing there? Okay, here's one thing I want you to know about God's grace. First of all, I never want to assume that everybody understands God's grace. And this story is replete with it. Grace is a major biblical concept of God's unmerited favor towards us, meaning we don't do anything for grace. We don't even have to ask for grace. God gives us his grace. He shows us his favor. He shows us his love. And then if you get rid of grace from Christianity, you no longer have biblical Christianity. It is the linchpin of what it means to be a Christian. It's understanding God's grace, not what we do, but what he extends and offers to us because of his love, not our merit. And here's what we'll get, especially, well, you know, you have a young church, don't, don't just give them too much grace, because if you give them too much grace, they're going to go on sinning and do whatever they want to do. And my, user, my answer to that is, what's the alternative? Because naturally our thought is that Jesus came to bring more rules. Jesus did not come to establish more rules. He came to give himself. He came to establish his love and understanding relationship with Jesus that the rules that the Bible talks about because it has beautiful rules. We are to be holy, we are to obey, but those rules in themselves are intact because of the relationship. It starts with the relationship. And if you think that just by giving more rules that you can change somebody, you can. You can change them from the external, but you cannot change their hearts. And that's why many of us, when we look at Christianity, we think, yeah, it's a, it's a rules, and if I can check the rules, then I'm doing good. If I can't, I'm doing bad, instead of trusting in the finished work of Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't extend his relationship waiting on them to, to, to promise to them. There was, there wasn't, it wasn't predicated on their decision to morally transform their lives. He loved them because he loved them. You know what that means? Grace precedes repentance. 
Grace sustains repentance. You know why? Because grace necessitates sin. Where there's sin, there's an opportunity for God's grace to enter in because of his own sovereign love and mercy. And when you get around that particular grace and you you understand it, you begin to say things like, it's amazing. And you sing songs like, it's amazing. I was once was lost and now I'm found because of his grace. And Jesus extends this to them. He extends this relationship. He extends the life and love of the kingdom. Now, what they decide to do with it is up to them. And so when it comes to transformation and people growing, we will never stop preaching grace. You will never hear a sermon from the pulpit here that is not laced with grace. It's the only way for us to truly have repentance and worship towards God to see what he has done on our behalf. And that's what Jesus is extending to these people. Normally you would say, I want to get in on that. I want to get in on that because you know what? These people weren't looking for God. Some of us, we became Christians because we grew up in Christian homes. Some of us became Christians because someone shared the gospel. Some of us became Christians because we were thinking about ways in which we can, you know, better our lives or get our kids dedicated or something. Some of us, we were not looking. God found us. when When I was a student here at ASU, the last thing I was looking for was Jesus, right? Not at all. God found me. I wasn't looking for my life to be changed. And here's the deal. You could have asked me, do you think the things you're doing are wrong? I would have said, yes. But I'm having fun doing it, right? There was no way I was going to say, oh, no, I don't. I knew I was wrong. You don't think the tax collectors and you don't think the prostitutes, you don't think the people, you thought they said, no, this is great. No, they know. But it's not going to change my life. And all of a sudden, the very one who can enters in. And he begins to extend love. Now, that's not to say Jesus doesn't have a message. He has a message. But first and foremost, he ate with them. And he invited them in, not knowing yet if they were going to change or not. Well, guess what? You would think everybody's excited. Wow, Jesus is probably going to get these people to change. Maybe that's one tax collector that won't rob us anymore. No. The religious of the religious don't like it. Read with me in verse 16. It says this. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Just like people who are uber-religious without any love and relationship. They don't even go in. They stand at a distance. They don't even talk to Jesus. They talk to his disciples. And they say, why is he eating with them? You know what's interesting? They they they, They were not upset that Jesus talked to Levi. They weren't even upset that he was probably trying to get them to change their life. They would have been okay with that. In fact, we have to understand a little bit something about the Pharisees, because I think we give the Pharisees kind of a a bad rap. The the Pharisees themselves were not people who tried to be bad people. Oftentimes we say, oh, they're bad people because Jesus opposed them. You realize if Jesus came today, he'd oppose a lot of us. We are more like the Pharisees. We all think like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm like the sinner who got saved, and I look, mm, come on. Um, The Pharisees were people who wanted... They were, they were nationalists. They wanted to reform. They wanted to say, how do we live for God? And how do we make sure that we stay Jewish and we live for God? To strict obedience and being strictly Jewish people. And they wanted to protect that. And the, what they were upset at was not that these people might change. They actually wanted people to change. They wanted people to repent. They were most upset that he was actually eating with them. Because they wanted people to change and then come to them. Where Jesus is saying, no, no, the way the gospel works is I'll come to you. And then you'll change. And that's radically different. And they didn't begin to understand what is religion, and again, in a pejorative sense, versus the gospel. 
There's a pastor that we love here um, that put together something I think is really helpful for us understanding the difference between religion and the gospel. And look at your screen here, and we'll read a few of these. It says, in religion, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. In the gospel, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. In religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. God's going to get me. In the gospel, motivation is based on grateful love. He loves me. In religion, I obey God in order to get things from God, whereas in the gospel, I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him. In religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself, since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Religion says, when I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs, so we hide. The gospel is, when I'm criticized, I struggle, but it's not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. I can take criticism. Lastly, in religion, identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. So I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. In the gospel, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, who was excluded from the city for me. I am saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different than me. Only by grace I am what I am. I have no inner need to win the arguments. There's a difference. And many of us, if we're not careful, we will naturally operate out of religion. What do I need to do to make this relationship right? Think of it this way. When you find yourself sinning, is repentance something you repent because you know you want to come back to the life and love that you have in Jesus? Or do you go, I better read my Bible, I better do this? Or do you give it time? That's what we do. We, do like, we, we treat God like we treat our parents when we're growing up. Like you wait till you get older to go, hey, remember when I was younger? I did steal the car. <laughs> that was me who took that money from your purse. Because it's like, what can you do about me now? You know, you can't do anything. And I think with God, we go, let's give us some time. Let's build up our good deeds, and then we can go to him. When the reality is, if you understood the gospel, you realize he's already forgiven you in Christ Jesus. Therefore, now you can go to him because of his grace. The Pharisees, they weren't looking for the gospel and good news. They were looking to morally reform people, and therefore, they didn't get it. And then Jesus begins to say, these words that are quoted often in verse 17. He says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, Jesus is not saying that he didn't come to save particular people. What he's trying to communicate is, I came for people who knew they had a need. If, you're, if you don't know you're sick, you don't, I mean, if, you don't, if you're not sick, you're fine. You don't need a doctor. But I mean, if you're sick, you have a need. And so here's the one implication for this message. If you don't walk away, go, what did Ricardo talk about today? Here it is. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who acknowledge their helplessness. Say it again. God, contrary to what we hear, God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who acknowledge their helplessness. So all you need is need. And God enters in your life. And that's hard for us. 
Because when we say that's the relationship that we have with Jesus, many of us, especially many of us guys, we're going, a relationship, you had me until you said relationship with Jesus, I don't know what to do, right? Well, not to say that women naturally know relationships better, but women naturally know relationships better, right? <laughs> so I did a wedding, I did a wedding yesterday, and, and the couple wanted to share some words with each other, and this is exactly what I mean. So the, the wife, uh, she reads her part, and it's written, and it's well done, and it's beautiful. She gets done, she walks over to the piano, and then sings a love song as she looks at him. She's playing and singing, I love you, and it's just amazing. And then we get back, and his turn, he goes, I, I, I think I love you, Jenny, right? <laughs> and it's like, there we go, right? He's just trying to figure out what can I say. <laughs> so when some of us hear, <laughs> his name's not Forrest, and I get it. When some of us hear that we're supposed to be in a relationship with Jesus, we don't understand that because it means we're, we have to be vulnerable. And I'm the first to admit that. Affections are hard for me. It comes natural with my kids and with my wife. It, it, it comes natural. Your kids, for whatever reason, your kids immediately get your love. They never do anything. But for whatever reason, I've just been, always been that guy that's like, you know, you know you're not going to see me walking around holding hands or whatnot. And when me and Holly got married, it's like, why don't you hold my hand? I'm like, yeah, I ain't trying to see you soon. Right? <laughs> you know? And, and then when you hear God wants a relationship with you, you're like, Dan, does he want to hold my hand? Like, and it doesn't make any sense. But what he's talking about there is not the way that we think of affection. When a relationship with God is understanding your need and how he desires to meet that need and how he's the only one to meet that need. And so when the gospel began to hit me, when I begin to understand the gospel, what I realize is it's not so much of this romantic love story things that we think about it is. Unfortunately, we communicate it that way. It's you're vulnerable in saying, I need you. That's why we sing that song. I need you, Lord, I need you. We sing that song. That's what most people sing at this church. Because there's something that's saying, I do need you. Every hour I need you. If that's what it means to be in relationship with you, then yes, I'm in relationship with Jesus because I need him. I need him in the morning, I need him throughout the day, I need him at home, I need him in my marriage, I need him with my friends, I need him in my decision making, I need Jesus, and it just so happens that he wants me. And he's always wanted me before I ever even knew I needed him. You see, the worst place that you can possibly be in is you think that you're okay. I got this, I'll just do it myself. That's the worst place, it's a lie from the pit of hell. There, there's, there's a rare um, genetic disorder called uh, congenial inglacia, and this, this particular disease or genetic disorder is very, very rare, and it, um, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a genetic disorder that doesn't allow you to feel pain. And there's a story about this little 12-year-old girl in, in, in ABC News um, a couple years ago, and how her parents just, they, they, they didn't know what to do because she literally was gonna kill herself because she didn't know she needed help. Something would fall into the boiling hot water in the stove, she'd reach in without even knowing that her, that her hand is burning up. She couldn't feel it. A lot of us spiritually put ourselves there. And if you're spiritually and you're going, you're just numb to this, man, you're killing yourself. But if you even have a simple spiritual cough, there's one who stands to say, I'll eat with you, I'll associate with you, I'll love you, I'll forgive you, I'll redeem you. He's the physician who came for that reason so that those who acknowledge their need may have their need met in Christ Jesus before the behavior changes. That follows because of the life and love of God. Amen? And so, so realize this. God does not help those who help themselves. It's not up to you. But he helps those who acknowledge their helplessness. And that's not just to begin a relationship with Jesus. As Christians, we remain needy people understanding that we are beggars in need of bread, and the only bread of life that we know is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity to know you, to follow you. Not because we were looking for you, but Lord, it was your desire to come looking for us. We thank you for the supreme, uh, amazing, and whatever descriptors we can give, grace. That we don't deserve it, but we receive it in you. God, you turn everything up in our, in, in our world upside down. It doesn't make any sense. And so when we find ourselves drifting toward religion, resting in our own works, help us to rest in your finished work. That our behavior, our obedience, our holiness would rest solely in Christ and following him. God, continue to make us followers of Christ and open up our eyes to see your truth and your beloved son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.